0: and we welcome you to the tuesday morning show on wgtd i'm gregory berg in my many years of hosting the morning show i have had the opportunity on a few rare occasions to speak with someone from national public radio always a very intimidating prospect but also a thrilling one i'm going to be sharing with you today an interview recorded back in 2010 with Scott Simon, one of the most admired voices on NPR. He is also a very, very fine writer. His books include My Cubs, A Love Story, Home and Away, Memoir of a Fan, Jackie Robinson, and the Integration of Baseball, and uh, also two novels, Pretty Bird and Windy City, a novel of politics. Again, this interview about his book called Baby, We Were Meant for Each Other was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2010. Enjoy. It is, of course, a very special pleasure, privileged thrill, frightening experience as well, to be speaking with uh, a luminary from National Public Radio like Scott Simon. And he is well known to so many of you, I'm sure, for his quarter century of hosting uh, NPR's weekend edition and in fact longtime listeners to WGTD might even remember that uh, well over 20 years ago Scott Simon actually paid a visit to WGTD during one of our f- fall fundraisers and uh, in addition to his superb work over the air Scott Simon is responsible for a number of very very fine books the novels Pretty Birds and Windy City the memoir Home and Away and Jackie Robinson and the Integration of Baseball And in a a very, very personal and insightful new book called Baby, We Were Meant for Each Other in Praise of Adoption, in which we learn of the experience which uh, Scott Simon and his wife Carolyn had in adopting two spectacularly beautiful little girls from China. And uh, this is a book not only about that, but of the uh, experiences of, of others who have either adopted or been adopted, and uh, woven together all kinds of remarkable insights on what it means to be human, what it means to be a parent, uh, the connection that we have with one another, and uh, and I can say as someone who's not a parent, not adopted, or uh, in, in no way sort of in the bullseye of, of this topic, that this book is one of the most interesting and moving books I've read in a long time.
1: Oh, I- thank you.
0: Scott Simon, we welcome you to the morning show. It's a delight and pleasure to speak to you. I will try not to dangle my participles or split my infinitives. As
1: oh, I, I do that all the time, and boy, don't our listeners let you know about it, too.
0: <laughs> I wonder if we could just spend, I, I assure you, just a very uh, brief uh, time, a minute or two, just talking about uh, how satisfying you find your work with National Public Radio, and in particular, what it is that has drawn you to and, and uh, essentially— keeps you grounded in the medium of radio
1: well you know I, and i think it's uh it's less the medium of radio i must say than it is just the way the way npr does radio uh i think is, is very satisfying to those of us who are who are blessed enough to have had careers there um it's a terrific amount of repertorial freedom there's a terrific amount of creative freedom uh really the only you know, all jokes aside, the only thing that anybody cares about is doing a good story. And there's a, a terrific latitude that you can use in terms of creative techniques and approaches to do that. Uh, even though, you know, the audience over the past 25 years has grown to almost 30 million uh, listeners to NPR nationwide. And uh, it, it's very satisfying because it's you know it's an audience and yet not just an audience over the years i think it's safe to say that npr listeners have become to use that terribly overworked word uh, a community uh they have become uh, individuals that really uh, share a singular experience a, a large group of individuals who share a singular experience and i think our themselves uh, adventurous in the, the kinds of knowledge that they want to receive, you know so much of the information world, and I think this is is really important nowadays, so much of the information world, what we call media is is literally divided um, you know you can you now reach whatever conclusion you think you want, and then you can you can find a news service that will tell you that you 're right. Uh, the thing that I really treasure about n p r is that they they don 't pander. I mean, we're entertaining. I, I, I shrink sometimes when we we're asked to record fundraising announcement that you use the word like intelligent or something. Oh, I, we are, I hope. But on the other hand, you know, we're also very entertaining, uh, and, and which is why I love to talk to people who don't necessarily fit, I think, the stereotype out there or the profile of an NPR listener. Um The people are just interested in ideas, interested in people, uh, and interested in in being exposed to the wider world. And just the opportunity to do that at NPR has been unrivaled.
0: Um, One of the people you talk to in the course of your book is your NPR colleague, Steve Inskeep, who is, of course, uh, one of the the hosts of, of Morning Edition. In a very brief interview I got to do with him, I think on his first anniversary on the job, I said something in a question about uh, what is it about radio you enjoy in terms of of it not having pictures. I mean, is there something about the lack of pictures that excites you and 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 poses uh, satisfying challenges? And he just jumped right and said, "Oh, but there are pictures," yeah. and uh, and of course then went on to say what of course anybody who listens to NPR knows, which is that it is amazing how vivid a picture can be created. Uh, simply through the world of sound and, and words,
1: Yeah, and I, you know, and I, I think it, it engages people uh, in, in a way sometimes other media doesn't. Uh, it stays with them. Um, i 'll leave it to physiologists to explain some of what's going on there, but I think it just, it just hits the mind and sits in the mind in a different way uh, than pictures, which, which uh, can be superficial. Uh, I, I don't happen to believe a picture is worth a thousand words. I mean, it depends. You know, you can cram an awful lot into a thousand words that, <laughs> that you know that are very worthy, which which is is not to in any way decry the value of pictures, uh, or for that matter, print. But I, I think radio is a wonderful medium uh, for both combining kind of the resonance of thought and the singularity uh, uh, of a single human vision with the immediacy of broadcasting, which is obviously another thing that we offer. Hmm.
0: We're speaking with Scott Simon. I feel like that's one of the more pointless introductions I've ever made in my long history with this program. Surely everybody listening to The Morning Show today knows that I'm speaking with Scott Simon, just that uh, unmistakable voice. And we are talking, however, not about NPR today so much as we are talking about Scott Simon's new book, Baby, We Were Meant for Each Other in Praise of Adoption, which in large measure is the story of uh, the experience of he and his wife, adopting two beautiful girls from China, and uh, woven together with the uh, the, re- the reflections and uh, really remarkable insights of a number of different people who either have adopted or been themselves adopted. I, I wonder, Mr. Simon, if you could talk about um, what it felt like to craft a book that was so exceptionally personal, and if... Uh, for as I'm sure as, as exciting as that had to be, was there anything uh, remotely unsettling about penning this kind of intensely personal book?
1: You know, I I have to say, you know, unless I run into something down the line, not really a lot. Uh, I mean, there were there were some things I just knew that we wouldn't go into, but nothing important. Uh, just, I, I was aware of the fact that our children are going to grow up reading this book, so um, I always tried to keep that in mind. But on the other hand, we're very open with our children, and the fact that we're very open with our children about how they came to be part of our family, and we became the, the people who look after them on, and, and love them above all, uh, above all others on this earth. Uh, we're very open about that, and that there's no way of just keeping that with inside the confines of the family. Nor why should you want to? There's nothing shameful about it at all. In fact, there's something joyful and blessed about it. So we're very open with our youngsters, and and that you know in, in includes being open in the outer world to talk about it. So really, it wasn't it wasn't that bad. There there is, and this might be on your mind. What I hope uh, I kind of mostly play for laughs, although there's a serious point at the end. There is a, a section on infertility. Uh, and, uh, and that's a rough thing for a lot of families to contend with. Absolutely, there is. But I, I, that's why I thought it was important to do it. That's why I thought it was important to tell that side of the story, and I, I, I play it for laughs in terms of my own experience, but uh, obviously for families that are going through infertility, uh, that can be a real problem because you do feel as if somehow you have failed uh, the person in your life that you uh, that you love most. You? I just thought if the book was going to be honest, I had to put that in there. Um, but as, a, as I say, I mean, it's mostly a funny section where I wind up acknowledging the obvious. So I, I can't say that there was a lot, and, and neither for the dozen other families with whom we spoke. I mean, Steven Skeep, Frank DeFord, uh, Alexander Julian, the fashion designer, um, Jeff Seller, the Broadway producer... Steve Levitt, the University of Chicago Free economics Professor, uh, all of them have different uh, adoption stories, and i said I said to all of them look I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you uh, agreed to speak with me for publication uh, these are These are all people to one degree or another that i I knew beforehand uh, and I, I want you to know since I'm aware of the fact that uh, you know it's, I'm not going to approach this as a traditional journalist if if there's something you don't want me to go into uh, i won't." and And then I'll have to decide whether or not it's it's worth including your story in the book, and you know none of the people with whom I spoke wanted to leave out any of the important stuff, not at all, uh, because I think the important stuff to us is is something that we're proud of
0: and uh, not to get too specific yet, but i one thing I appreciated is that these various stories are not included in your words to tell any kind of particular story or to make any particular point about adoption. I mean, it seems that you went looking for whatever kind of experiences they had had about adoption. You write, the stories I share from other families are not meant to prove anything yeah. in particular.
1: You know, it's not because, I mean, I don't, on the one hand, I don't, I mean, I've I've got nothing. The only thing I want to (laughs) prove is hardly the word, but you know what, I I hope people, if they uh, they read the book, which I think of as first and last, a series of love stories, uh, I mean, a series of romances, as to how people find each other, uh, fall in love, and make their way uh, in life with each other, make their way through life with each other. But uh, I do want to open a window into adoption. I want to de-traumatize it for people on the outside, maybe who don't understand it. And I also want people to understand that that it is as natural as childbirth. I mean, like childbirth, it begins with an act of love. Uh, It it literally transforms your flesh and blood. And I think it's been going on almost as long as childbirth. I mean, this to me was a bit of an eye-opener, although kind of modern, legally regulated adoption is relatively new. Very ancient accounts. You, You read about people picking up children who have been left behind. Sometimes, even, by the way, children of, of enemies that they had smited, or whatever the biblical term would be. You know, when, when Pharaoh's daughter lowered her arms down into the bulrushes, that was a that was a little baby wrapped in a Hebrew blanket. She didn't think it was a member of the Egyptian royal family, yet she raised him as a member of the Egyptian royal family. Uh, Tolstoy, Steve Jobs, uh, William Tecumseh Sermon, John Lennon, whose 70th birthday we are in so many ways observing, uh, around this time. Um, we're all adopted. Um, this has been going on for centuries, and it's not a trauma. It's something joyful, and I think people who are adopted and the families who adopt them are, are really nothing but blessed.
0: You begin the book with this simple, profound sentence, adoption is a miracle, and you go on to say that what, what makes it a miracle is that is its inexplicability. I wonder if you could, with, could share with us what you find most inexplicable about adoption.
1: Well, you literally hold that child in your arms when you, in case of our, we, we received two daughters in China, one of the adoptions that are one, in fact, at our hotel room in Nanchang, and literally you fall in love at that moment, which, and, and that only deepens uh, as you go along that you can literally feel your heart reforming and new chambers forming in your heart and the, <laughs> the flow of your blood being rerouted uh, and out of yourself so much and into that child that you hold in your arms. I mean, it literally is a transforming miracle, that way, to have that child placed in your arms and know um, you're to look out for them in life. is transforming. Um, it's revolutionary in, I think, the real sense of that very overworked world. Now, as I, I think I also say in the book, it's not as if you... You know, when you become a parent, you immediately stop uh, trying to stay up late and be cool and tell naughty jokes and all that sort of thing. But you, you are literally sobered with the fact as you hold that child that you have become uh, responsible for their welfare on this earth. Hmm. And the love that you can feel flowing out of you into that child is, uh, is something absolutely transforming. It, it, it absolutely reconfigures what's important to you in life. And you know, as my mother said once, it, it makes you less frightened of death, uh, because we, uh, we, we know the story doesn't end here. Hmm.
0: Your story of adoption actually uh, has, has an interesting first chapter of sorts, uh, a moment in the nation of Ethiopia. And uh, I wonder if you would share with our listeners this, this very powerful moment, and, and to what extent it it resonates with what you and your wife ultimately decided to do.
1: Well you know we were, I was in Ethiopia covering the what was then the civil war and uh, and famine in that country and we went to uh, an orphanage there were lots of youngsters who had been <coughs> orphaned uh, and or abandoned um really for a generation in Ethiopia and they were all little boys in white shirts and just called out something within me. I began to pick them up. I began to hoist them on my shoulders. I began to hold them. I began to kiss them. And these were, were little boys who had been uh, surviving, living, in, you know, one of the uh, very good church-run orphanage. Uh, as my wife says, there are orphanages that were, they have enough resources. There's enough food for the youngsters. There's enough clothing. Uh, they might be warm enough, but there are no happy orphanages. And these are youngsters who had just been longing for a human touch, and I happened to be the human being who walked in that day and began to give it to them and We just spent the the day hugging and kissing and rolling around on the ground and uh, holding them and When I went to sleep that night i I literally felt an ache for their you know their little heads against my shoulders and it was I think one of the one of the first times I began to think that I really uh, I really want to be a father. I really uh I want I really I really want to um look out for someone in this world.
0: Hmm. As you and your wife realized uh your your situation um actually I before we get into that I because I find myself hesitating how to frame this question <laughs> yeah. it brings to mind the fact that you uh you talk in the book about how some of the challenges involving language are really exquisitely difficult. Oh, my gosh. Difficult. You write, writing about adoption is fraught with opportunities for people to take offense. Can yeah. you just say a word of, of, about that? Uh, because I'm, I suspect that weighed very heavily on you as you put yeah, words I mean, on the screen. Yeah, I mean, it's
1: absolutely a rhetorical minefield when you try and do it because you, um, you know, uh, people do not like the phrase, for reasons I understand, his adopted child— so you have to say, his child, who is adopted. Uh, you know, even though I, I, I think the majority of people that that encapsulate an observation like that certainly don't mean to be offensive. Uh, you have to use a phrase like, uh, you know, has an adoption plan, which I think is, is, is I don't mind saying ludicrous when applied to a, a young woman in China, scared young mothers in China, who have to give up their children because they know they can't, no, they can't keep them under the law because of China's obnoxious state family planning policies, and, and specifically the one-child policy. Uh, and, and without without meaning to, you can say something that absolutely uh, inflames people, because uh, a lot of them know the two or three phrases that, that most offend them, and so that's what they're kind of loaded with a baseball bat ready to swing out at. But when uh, you're certainly writing a book that touches on adoption, you have to phrase different situations in maybe a hundred different ways. So um, <laughs> it, it's a minefield. Right. I mean, <laughs> knock wood. So far, it's been okay. <laughs>
0: Good. And so far, I hope we're okay with our interview. Uh, I. Uh, so what I the the question I'm framing in my mind is something to the effect that when you and your wife
1: discovered that. Um, well, discovered that uh, the uh, traditional Abraham and Sarah begetting manner wasn't working.
0: You took the words right out of my mouth. Yes, yes right, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, when you knew that that was appearing to not be a, a feasible option for you, and then you began to consider adoption, you you shared with us some really interesting reasons why ultimately international adoption became your choice, and also why China... Uh, ultimately was the most attractive option um speak about both of those important choices that you and your wife made
1: yeah and and you know i I should explain that circumstances change i think from year to year uh I, i i certainly have heard just since i've been making appearances with this book uh from a lot of families who will fill in the blanks about why it can be daunting to to adopt domestically um in, in our particular case, uh, like Frank DeFord talks about in his case, I was already over 40. My wife is not yet there, and uh, many domestic adoption authorities prefer to give preference to younger parents. Uh, so we would have been at the back of the line. And this creates things, which is not to say that maybe we wouldn't have had a child in our arms in, in one year, two years, or three years, but who could say? There was a anxiety about that. Um there are also other international programs. In fact, we looked at Ethiopia. That was the the first program at which we looked. And the good news at that particular point for Ethiopia was that there weren't that many children that were available, so there was a long waiting list. Uh, now, by the way, uh, Ethiopia has a more active program than it did then. China had the most expeditious program going. They said that once you were approved, uh, you could have a baby in your arms within nine months. And given the fact that we had already spent two years trying to to start a family, that sounded very good to us. Uh, now, of course, China altogether different. Uh, in fact, I met—I'm I'm doing this interview with you from uh, from Boulder, Colorado. I met a, a family last night at one of my appearances that said that they were approved. They got, I, I guess, what's called their authorization uh, in 2006. So they have they have already been waiting for four years, and let's figure another year where they went through the paperwork. So they've been waiting for five years for a child from China. Now, had that been the case when my wife and I were adopting, we would not have adopted in the Chinese program. But at that particular point, it seemed the most expeditious. And you know, you also look for signs. I'm not sure I can explain that, but you 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 look for kind of the universe to arrange itself in such a way that will that will a cloud will open and it will reveal your path to you. And in our case, my wife and I, who had a stunningly quick courtship, had fallen in love in Chinatown in New York. She had an apartment on Mott Street. And and somehow that seemed to fit. Hmm.
0: One of the things that is endearing about your story, and in some respects even encouraging, I suppose, is that uh, your story of, particularly with your first daughter you adopted from China, is not exactly a story of love at first sight, as far as she was concerned.
1: No, absolutely not. Goodness gracious. Well, we were put into her arms. The only world that she had had known, she's 11 months old, of course, had been in that orphanage, in that institution. And um, we know it was cold. We know that she was fed according to a rigid schedule. We know that she was never held, kissed, all of that stuff. that Simply the numbers make it impossible to do in orphanages. Uh, but it was the only world that she knew, and she was understandably anxious, and suddenly there's these two big adults all over her, and we're kissing her, and we're holding her, and we're cooing to her. Uh, our little girl, Elise, uh, talking about oldest daughter, her Chinese name is Feng Mei, which is now her, her middle name. So we would, uh, kind of stand on either side of her, my wife and I, and try and to persuade her that we were on her side, and we would chant, Feng Xiaomei, Feng Xiaomei, Feng Xiaomei. Uh, and for two and a half days, she cried. Uh, she cried inconsolably. Uh, she was crying so much, uh, only pausing to come up for air so that she could eat. Uh, I really thought the little tears on her face—her face was, her, her, her little face was turning so red and so hot. Uh, I thought I thought the tears would kind of break into into droplets of steam. Um, and then, after two and a half days, and not long after we gave her a bath, which she rather decided that she liked. Um, I don't know. She just as Steve Levitt, the free economics professor, says in the book, children are not only—and she was 11 months at that point, remember—children are not only amazingly absorbent and remember things; uh, they also have a genius for forgetting what they don't need to survive. And I think after two and a half days, she had just determined that um, we were there—that uh, that we were we were her ticket in life, and we were the folks. Uh, to whom she'd been given in the universe at this particular point, and uh, we seemed to be doing okay by her, and so that was okay with her. Hmm. Uh, and then that's, you, you see the incredibly infectious smile that's on the cover, the, the cover photo of my wife holding up Elise. Uh, that's when the giggles and the laugh began to come, the sweetest sound in the world.
0: Hmm. Against that backdrop is, of course, the very sobering, um, actually tragic reality of life in China and how baby girls uh, have been regarded there. And um, I appreciate the fact that, uh, that in your book you uh, squarely confront this reality, which you say, express it at one point this way, it is impossible, it is irresponsible to forget that our daughters are blessings that began with a crime. Uh-huh.
1: Well, and the, and the crime, I think, is, is China's one-child family policy. And, and, and look, let, let me say, my wife and I did not think that China's state planning of the family policies were so reprehensible we set out to adopt two little girls from there to somehow rescue them from that. That wasn't the case at all. As I said, China just had the most expedition, pro, expeditious program going at the time we were adopting. But now that we have adopted two little girls... They are from China, and we are a half-Chinese family, so my, my wife and I are obliged to find out about this, and, and even obliged to feel strongly about this. Um, the life of little girls who are abandoned uh, in the countryside is too terrible for us to contemplate. Now, it's 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 not the lives our little girls are going to have, but... These are not the lives of the, of the, you know, the people that you can see in uh, occasional uh, television profiles of Chinese millionaires or billionaires, uh, and lots of accomplished people who are doing things in China. Um, these are little girls who, uh, had they not been adopted, um, would have been had no no particular childhood, um, would have been forced into farm or factory work by the age of 11 or 12, simply slotted there. That's, that's, that's what they do with, with the uh, manpower that they have in the orphanages in China. Um, or, or sometimes worse, and the worst really is too terrible to contemplate, um, where, where they, they might have wound up, if I might say it delicately, in a life of, of servitude to men. And uh, I don't want this to hang heavy on our daughters' heads. They are, if anything, spoiled kids. Uh, and I can say that because I'm the spoiler-in-chief. Um, they they want for nothing in particular in their lives. Although, as Elise said the other day to my wife, uh, I would like a dog. But uh, that, that's about at the level of want that they have. But I do hope that at some point our youngsters, and I can even see that beginning to develop now, uh, will be the kind of human beings uh, who will wonder what kind of lives Youngsters that might have been in cribs on either side of them in their orphanages had. Uh, I want them to have that, that sense of conscience and that kind of character. And and I hope my wife and I are doing that.
0: I wonder if you would share with our listeners uh, a very poignant moment uh, in which you are putting Elise to bed uh, on a very cold night in Chicago. She's about two years old at the time, and she... Um, she apparently had kind of kicked the, the blankets off, and so she calls out, Code, Mama, Code. And, code, Mama, Code. You know, and, uh, of course, your wife comes running to uh, put her in, in uh, under the blankets again. You write, Our baby huddled and shivering, calling out for her mother's touch, trusting that all she had to do was call and her mother would be there. But uh, then you tell us about uh, some time ago when a, a really almost kind of heartbreaking little conversation occurs between your wife and Elise.
1: My wife was putting her to uh, to bed, and in a very matter-of-fact way, Elise looked up and said, When my mother left me, was I cold? And, you know, that's just a devastating question to hear. And I think what happens is that, uh, you know, children understandably are curious, and they fill in the blanks about what their experience was might have been, and my wife told her what we know that, that she was found, she was clean, uh, wrapped in warm clothing, um, and left uh, in, a, in a in a bundle in front of uh, a light bulb factory uh, where she was meant to be found, and that she was wrapped very tightly and and was clearly had been cared for, had clearly been loved, and my wife said, "No, darling, you were not cold. You're." Uh, your mother loved you very much, and she put you in a place where she knew you would be found, and she made certain that you were not cold. Hmm. Um, you know, and it's... I refer, <clears throat> I guess I refer to it as a devastating moment, but it's a very healthy question to ask. Uh, I mean, I i, I think th- this this displays a young woman in our, our now seven-year-old who... Uh, has a very healthy understanding of her origins in life and curiosity about it and yet uh, at the same time understands that it it is somehow not a wound to be absorbed or gotten over it's just it's just a circumstance we all have these circumstances and we we learn from them and we grow stronger and we get better as we grow up
0: hmm. this also speaks to uh, what you said earlier in the interview that you really try not to think of either of your two daughters as Rescued children, although I'm sure one of the challenges of that is that probably a lot of people out in the world uh, are tempted to think of them in that
1: way. Well, you know, yes, and um, meaning only to be nice, I must say uh, that's the case. I mean, I, I, there's a uh, <laughs> there's a, a, a woman who works at the food service at NPR, and when I when uh, I bring our daughters in. Uh, well, she they are incredibly cute and adorable, and so she was making a big fuss over them, and she made them a, a huge pile of food, which she brought over for breakfast as we were having there in the cafeteria. And then she said, as we sometimes hear, your daughters are so beautiful, you know, she they could almost be Chinese. And <laughs> I laughed and said, as a matter of fact, they are Chinese. And she said, oh, oh, but your wife's not Chinese. And I said, yes, no, that's true. She's French. And she wondered, you know, how did that happen? And I said, well, we adopted them. They were in orphanages, and we adopted them. And she just, her eyes just filled with tears. And of course, she did what I think any natural parent will do. Uh, She began to fill their plates with even more food, (laughs) 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 as if you know you could make up for it in that particular moment. Uh, And I, you know, things like that. I think what they happen at that level are just uh, are just absolutely fine. But I I don't want our daughters uh, growing up thinking that they have a big thing to get over some kind of that the the circumstances of how they came to us represent some kind of trauma that they must spend the rest of their lives recovering from, because I don't think that's true at all. Mm. And I also don't want them to think that somehow they, the way they began in life is any kind of permanent disadvantage. I mean, is it a tough way to begin in life? Absolutely. Um, but I think by the time most of us are in our late teens, um, We've suffered some kind of losses, deaths, people close to us, perhaps even our, our parents, as I did, uh, some kind of illness, some kind of tragedy, uh, from which we have to bounce back. And um, you know, it's that it's that experience that absolutely makes the heart resilient.
0: Sure, it's one of many wounds or many losses that we are bound to experience as human beings. Exactly, <laughs> and I, you
1: know, and I, I think our, um, uh, you know, our, our daughters just. Just had one big, fat, obvious one at the at the very beginning of their lives, but uh, they seem to be doing pretty well now. And you know, I, I think it's also important for my wife and I, as parents, to to let them be children, to to also not treat them as they're somehow rescued uh, children, because um, we we don't want them to have a sense of gratitude to us. I mean, for one thing you know, the gratitude is all in the other direction. We thank them for being the blessing of our lives. Uh, I mean, I do think they could be a little bit more conspicuously uh, thankful to their mothers for all that my wife does for them. You know, I mean, I don't think it would hurt them to say, oh, mother, this was a very delicious, nutritious breakfast. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking such good care of us, instead of, I don't want pancakes again. (laughs) But that being swept aside, um, I want them to be able to grow up normally, to push back, to rebel, uh, to tell us that we're going you know, to tell me specifically that I'm an idiot, I don't really understand them. Uh, I actually look forward to the day that at some point they'll say, why did you take us out of the fastest expanding economy in the world and bring us to this industrial backwater? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that'll mean that they're thinking for themselves and standing on their own two feet. And, and they have to be free to grow up without any kind of sense of gratitude to us.
0: Hmm. By the way, uh, I I just want to mention to our listeners that there's quite an extensive discussion in the book on uh, observations made by uh, author Nancy Verrier in a well-known book called The Primal Wound, in which she suggests that really anybody adopted is beginning life with a a very particular kind of wound from which, in a sense, they, they never fully recover. And one of the things I think is so intriguing about how you talk about this is that although you pretty much disagree with uh, that point uh, that she makes. You say at one point, but I try to listen, <laughs> because you find that there are other things she says that, uh, for you, ring more true. But well, I, I appreciate yeah, and
1: that. I, and I, you know, and I think, uh, I think that phrase is unfortunate in some of the reasoning that surrounds it. But, I, you know, Nancy has had—she uh, does an awful lot of good for many people, Particularly as a family therapist, and she just has an awful lot of experience talking to people, and I think a lot of her prescriptions are are in fact very very valuable. Uh, that we we always have to be sensitive, especially in families touched by adoption. To for example, to um, uh, be sensitive for we we want to make certain our youngsters aren't just trying to please us, and so therefore. If if they show talents in a direction that's nowhere reflected in our family line or interests in something that, in no way reflect ours, uh, we have to be sensitive enough to pick up on that and and help them. Uh, and and had she just maybe not referred to it as a primal wound, but simply said, "This is a,", a you know, I, I think I have some fun with it in the book. I say, "Well, I think I suffered a primal wound when I wasn't born as Warren Buffett's son." um but but I, I i do agree that it you know it might be some kind of sensitivity at certain times in one's life uh, hunger can be a trigger example for for kids who've been in institutions um because they're they're used to fending for themselves when they even when there's uh, enough food in an institution um they're used to kind of uh, they, you know they're they're fed according to a schedule not according to when they're hungry especially when they're young Uh, And that's not the kind of attention a baby should receive. So while they're growing up, hunger can be a kind of trigger. And when they become hungry, um, a youngster who spent formative months uh, not being able to react like a child but in an institution and and missing the one-to-one love of a parent uh, won't get hungry and say, well, I've got every flavor of yogurt stick in the world in the freezer. Uh, They'll get hungry and they'll get demonstrative. And, And I think parents have... Youngsters who've been in institutions have to have to be sensitive to that, hmm. but these are all things to work through at, at at no particular great cost. And I think on on uh, on the other side of it, you, uh, you there's a great flat field of normalcy.
0: Sure. Well, and that's uh, another intriguing thing about your book is that uh, not everything you write about is. Bolted securely and inexorably with with adoption. I mean, yeah. much of what you talk about is 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 the reality of of all parents. I mean, tantrums. You uh, write at one point, children have tantrums whether they have been adopted from China, plucked from bulrushes, or born into the house of Windsor. And uh, there's something kind of encouraging about that.
1: I yeah. I mean, I think I even I even venture the guess that um, venture the guess that when the Dalai Lama was four years old, he probably had tantrums. Um, you know, what happens, though, and we want to, if we can, spare our daughters from this, and and I, and I hope maybe in writing a book like this spare um, even more than just our daughters about this, you, do, you know, you don't want people like seeing a four-year-old kid who happens to be adopted throwing a tantrum and assume that it's adoption-related. Uh, they're four years old. These things happen, you know? And uh, I, I think it's interesting, that, like Martin Simon uh, talk about in the book, the son of Paul Simon, a late senator from neighboring state of Illinois. And uh, that's one of my favorite vignettes in the book. And Martin says, interestingly, as he was growing up, uh, the fact of his adoption, he felt, Uh, was very liberating in that it allowed him to trace everything back to that fact. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He didn't, if he was feeling anxious, if he was feeling confused, if he was going through the adolescent period of, oh, where do I fit into this world, uh, he could trace that back to adoption. He had had a peg on which to rest things. uh, And he said he actually felt very grateful that way, because he Mm -hmm. could figure it out through that prism.
0: That's uh, one way in which uh, this matter of one's own plot line you yeah, know, exactly. I, I
1: think Steve Inskeep talks about that, too. Right. right?
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, Steve says, as he was growing up, he was a kid with a lot of, I guess, what we call moxie, and was always joking and always making irreverent comments, and, and he told himself it was always because he was trying to make up for something having been adopted, or as he said, at least that was my plot line, that was my narrative.
0: Right. So much of your book is tremendously positive and life-affirming and joyous. Yeah. Uh, I do appreciate the fact that among the accounts that we read is that of Steve Sagcree who was born in Italy and yeah. given up by his mother and a family that adopted him essentially gave him back dropped him off at uh, the Angel Guardian orphanage uh setting him you write on or he says S- setting my brother and I on the counter like some kind of delivery parcel and left them there. Yeah, and this reminds us of of the reality that uh, I mean that adoption is uh, it's never accidental. It is a deliberate choice, and in most cases, of course, a very loving choice that someone has made. This story reminds us of kind of the flip side of of that, that in certain thankfully rare ac- occasions, we hope, it's sometimes a, a conscious decision or choice. Which uh, someone tries to reverse.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I I have known Steve for years, and I'm I'm so grateful that he that he was willing to. I mean, I, I haven't weighed these things on a scale. He's got just about the most I think painful story in there. Although, as he keeps saying, you know, he he was never in his mother's shoes, so he doesn't want to doesn't want to judge. Uh, th- this was in post-war Italy, and. Uh, you know, his, his mother wasn't ready to have a family. Let's put it that way. And Steve is a wonderful guy, and he's just about the most active human being I know. Uh, he's a jeweler and vintage wash specialist in, in suburban Cleveland, Ohio. But he scuba dives, he paints, he takes award-winning photographs. I mean, he ranges uh, around the world in kind of adventure travel. Uh, he's always busy. He's always moving. And... He was adopted, uh, and these people uh, in Indiana, northwest Indiana, changed their minds. It was the sort of thing where they thought adopting a kid from post-war Italy sounded like a good thing to do. He wonders, Steve wonders, if they didn't do it to please their parish priest, and then faced with the reality of Steve and his little brother Al, Alphonse, uh, they just decided against it, and they put them literally on the desk at the Angel Guardian Orphanage outside Chicago there in northwest Indiana. Now, this comes back to, as my wife says, there are no happy orphanages. <clears throat> Angel Guardian, and I'm old enough to remember when there used to be publicity about it, Angel Guardian was considered the chote or grotten of orphanages. It was plentifully supported by the Archdiocese of Chicago. I don't mind saying it was the favorite charity of a, of a lot of prominent Chicago mobsters. Uh, Steve still, still talks about the opulent Christmas parties that they had. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin would entertain the kids at uh, at Angel Guardian. And they had plenty to eat. They had plenty of clothes. Um, they had opportunities and advantages. I mean, it was truly considered a good thing to do for a child. And yet, um, you could read Steve's story and understand that it, it's still, what happened to him still matters in his life. Uh, it still counts, no matter what he's achieved, no matter what he's earned. Um, the hurt of that, there's still a sting in his life that, that he believes still affects him. Uh, he thinks, I think he's much too hard on himself as to how it's affected uh, his ability to be a good father. I think he's a great father. And by the way, I happen to know his daughters agree with me. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he, he talks about ways in which he, he thinks he's been emotionally closed off as a father, and he hates to do that because he he loves his children very much. Um, and I, I'm so glad that he consented to share, uh, that he consented to share his story Hmm. because, um, on the one hand, it has a happy ending. Hmm. This is a man of great accomplishments. This is a man who could be considered a, you know, a poster child for the angel guardian orphanage and, and for orphanages. Uh, on the other hand, you realize that there's certainly a deep hurt that's left in his life. Sure. Um, and, and what I so admire about Steve is that he's kept on going. Um, he has. He decided a long time ago he wasn't going to let that kind of spent hurt prevent him from having the one life we're all ever going to have. Hmm. And I think he's done remarkable things with his life, both professionally and personally.
0: The last word I wanted to leave with our listeners is uh, from very late in the book, and uh, it certainly has to resonate powerfully with with uh, the experience of you and your wife and your two daughters, and and uh, and and with many families all around the world. You write, adoptive parents come to terms early with something every parent has to confront at some turn. Our love is not exclusive. Two other people gave our child life, and perhaps a love as powerful as our own. They couldn't keep them, and in the end, no parent can. All parents have to cheerfully and tearfully accept that their children belong to the world.
1: Yeah, and 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 I do think we adoptive parents... Adopting parents, whatever the term of art is, uh, I think we often just have to come to terms with that a lot, a lot earlier, uh, because we understand that uh, that someone who who loved our children as powerfully as we do uh, gave them up, and did not because they didn't love them, but because of circumstances that prevented them from keeping them uh, in their lives. So, so we begin with that fact. Uh, and yet, of course, any youngster growing up at some point uh, will grow up and grow out of our embrace, grow out of our, not our love, certainly, but um, out of our house. And if we, <laughs> if we want them in our lives for the rest of our lives, if we want them to come back, if, if we want to remain a part of each other's lives, uh, what we need are memories. Um, what we need are things that knit us together, that love and that understanding and it can't be dictated it has to it has to grow out of our mutual experience and um i think one of the for lack of a better term advantages adoptive families have is that we are inspired to utter things out loud to each other that maybe in other families they kind of assume you know yeah of course i love you you're my daughter um Well, in adoptive families, I think we are inspired to talk to each other about what we mean to each other. And uh, I think that can even give us a deeper bond, Hmm. Um, the deepest bond of all.
0: Sure. Important things do not go without saying, in other words. Exactly, yeah. The book is Baby, We Were Meant for Each Other. In Praise of Adoption, it is published by Random House. Scott Simon, this has been a great pleasure and honor for me. Thank you so much, and thank you for writing this beautiful book.
1: My pleasure. Thanks very much.